Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And I also get to talk to iconic, creative, curious listeners, and I get to hear your stories, your creative paths, your struggles. And it's one of the best parts of my week to get a great letter from someone who loves the show or have found some bit of wisdom or advice in the show through one of our guests and it has changed their path or given them inspiration to do whatever it is they're doing in their creative life. So I don't have a specific letter to read from somebody this week, but if you have any questions, if you just want to know what we're doing over here, or if you want some specific advice and you're fine with bad advice, send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And maybe I'll even read your email on the air. But this is a two-way street, and I'm very proud that we have listeners that are so involved and committed to the arts, and I want to hear from you. So send me an email, sam at offcamera.com, and let's talk. Now, on with the show. As I was saying, I am lucky enough to get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists every week. And this episode, I sit down with comedian, writer, and actor Patton Oswalt. I was really excited to have Patton on the show because I have been following his career ever since I first saw him on stage at the legendary Los Angeles club, The Largo, in the mid-90s, where he made me laugh harder than perhaps I have ever laughed before or since. I was a regular at Largo, seeing musicians like John Bryan, Elliot Smith, Amy Mann, and comedians like Paul F. Tompkins, Sarah Silverman, Zach Galifianakis, Jack Black, and of course, Patton Oswalt. I lived down the street from the club and... Looking back on that time, it was such a formative experience for me, and that club was the coalescence of what it really meant to be an artist. If you were up on that stage, either as a comedian or as a musician, it meant you were doing something pure, something that meant the whole world to you, and you were putting your personality into it. So I was very excited to have Patton on the show. And as I learned in this conversation, the road to the kind of insight and humor that Patton has is a long, uncertain one. As he says, I worked for years doing very uncreative jobs. And for some people, that's fine. But for me, it felt like a premature death in a lot of ways. Well, that's how Patton felt before he was able to make a living off of his art. And it's also why he so values a career in the arts, and specifically those special creative moments when a joke or an emotion lands and transcends all the social barriers we put between each other. Early on, Patton realized that staving off life in a coffin would be difficult if he let his self-critical voice take over. But he was so inspired by fellow comedians and filmmakers that the creative doors in his head kept getting kicked open, making him realize, I can go further because of what I just saw. Instead of shirking in the presence of great comedians like David Cross, Sarah Silverman, and Zach Galifianakis, he stayed in the room with them and focused on working harder and getting better. And with his work ethic, it's no wonder that Patton has become successful in every artistic medium he's tried. He masterfully melts comedy and tragedy in his astounding Netflix special, Annihilation, where he discusses the sudden and devastating loss of his first wife. He's written two entertaining and insightful memoirs, Zombie Spaceship Wasteland and Silver Screen Fiend. He's even developed a successful acting career with roles in projects like AP Bio, Young Adult, and Justified. There's only one thing left for him to do now, and that's to take on one of his first loves, filmmaking. And as I found out, that subject is a little more complicated. Patton joins off-camera to talk about the terrors he had to conquer to make Annihilation, why making his own film scares the daylights out of him, and why you should think twice before you get a bowl of noodles from the Yoshinoya Beef Bowl on your lunch break. So pull up a chair and listen in. 
Hi, Patton. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. You're so welcome. You know, I've had such a fun week knowing that you were going to come in here mm -hmm. and um, reading both of your memoirs, which I'd never read, uh, Silver Screen Fiend and Zombie Spaceship Wasteland. <laughs> and they're fascinating portraits of what it takes to forge your own path and try to be an artist and, and the resistance you run up against. And I felt like I got to know you a new way in those books. So I want to talk all about that. Sure. Um, wow. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to talk about your new show. And there's so much to talk about. But I, where I wanted to start was the mid-90s at Largo. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Because I used to see you back then. I lived at Hayworth and Beverly. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. So I would go to Largo all the time. I saw a ton of comics there. And as these things often go, when there is a scene that's happening that's special, I don't know if you, you can ever understand when it's happening that it is completely, like you can't give it historical context. And I just wonder if, for you, if you look back and romanticize that time. Well, I didn't start thinking about it that way until later, until years, years later. When it was going on, and I think that's how you know when you are in a really, really vibrant, amazing, maybe historical moment is you are too uh, unaware because you're so excited at the work and the creativity that you are doing. I'm sure that, you know, Warhol and all of his satellites uh, during the factory years weren't going, wow, it's the factory years. They were like, it's Tuesday, I'm getting up, I'm making amazing art. And, you know, if you read uh, Patti Smith's Just Kids. I love that you know, book. But she and Robert Maplethorpe were not, they were not aware of how they were about to change both music and photography. They were like, do we dine and dash <laughs> our grilled cheese sandwiches so we have money for art supplies, or do we pay for the grilled cheese sandwiches so we can shoplift art supplies because they I want fuel so I can create I right now I've, I'm in that creativity to burn stage of my career where it's all creativity I, I could not wait to get to the Largo every Monday if I wasn't on I just wanted to go because I had to see what everyone else was doing I wanted to know that I was operating at that level right so yeah that's how I know that it was special because it felt very very rushed and sleepless and, and it wasn't just me, it was everyone. Every single week there were people going up with just new 10, 15, 20 minute sets of just new, when you're in that zone and it's just, you know, you, you can't, it almost, it's almost like you're not writing anymore. You're, there, there are periods of your life where you will just channel stuff. They're few and far between, but when they happen, you just, everything else shuts off and that's all you want to do. And that's how it felt then. I mean, I had a staff writing job and I would sneak out of work on nights that I should have been there doing rewrites, I would, I would, I would ignore personal relationships because I'm like, I gotta get to the Largo. You know, the, I, I remember the first time I saw you, you were doing a bit about Yoshinoya beef bowl and how yes. the food was so bad that it must have been a front for like a mob syndicate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a bit. I didn't write again. I didn't write it. It was it was in that fever, those fever years where I went. I was, I remember I was working at Mad TV. We had a lunch break. I went to the Yoshinoya Beef Bowl at the corner of Santa Monica and Vine. It's still there. They've since repainted it, but it is there. It's That's still running the business. Th there's locations everywhere. I don't know what's going on. It's the worst food. And what blows me away is this is Los Angeles. You can get insanely good Asian food, Japanese food, Thai, anywhere. So the fact that 
So seeing Yoshinoya thrive in Los Angeles, it just boggles my mind. And then, so I had that horrible lunch and then I went to, to the Largo that night and I was literally, it was, I could still taste the horrible bowl of noodles <laughs> I had up. as I was yelling about it. And it really was <laughs> this, it was a it, sensory it was, experience. It was almost like I was alone in my car, just yelling at my, uh, about it to myself, but I was on stage. So when I saw that, that was, that was just the genesis happened of that. Hours ago, and I was so angry because it was my, you know, it was my hour to get lunch, and, I, and every place else I couldn't get in. Everything that I say in the bit happened that afternoon. There's a line of cars on the block for in and out. I can't get in there. I, everything else is crowded. Oh my god, the time's ticking away. What am I gonna? Oh shoot, I'll just get a bowl of noodles. And I go, oh my god, the place is empty. Okay, I actually sit, and then oh, th- then I then you realize why it's empty because it's the worst food on the planet. How is this place successful? There's locations everywhere. What is making this, what is it that people eat there? Because you can't run a restaurant without repeat business and without people going, oh, hey, if, if you're hungry, you need a good bowl of noodles, go to Yoshinoya. No one has ever eaten at Yoshinoya and then gone to the friends and go, hey, definitely <laughs> go to, no, that's a place people go and then they almost get evangelical about, I don't care how hungry you are. Don't go. Eat your belt <laughs> for, the, for the protein and the leather before you ha- have lunch at Yoshinoya people. That's where that came out of. I was so angry at this blown lunch break. And then the rest of the day, I'm, I'm back in my office writing and I'm bloated and I have those weird fast food sweats that you get where you're it's like, oh, good Lord, what did I put in my body? And so I just took it right to stage. God, well, yeah. you know, it's funny. You have the seemingly a photographic memory, at least in your own career and in cinema, to remember specific lines of dialogues from films you saw 20 or 30 years ago. And, and I'm curious how that relates to being an observational writer. I mean, I don't know if I have a photographic memory, though. I think maybe... I have more of an emotional memory where things really land with me emotionally and sometimes that can be a line in a film because cause that, for, the, for that fusion to happen, for a moment in a film to stay with you, that means a writer had to nail that dialogue by him or herself months or years before that happened. Then an actor, actress had to look at that line, interpret it the right way it's supposed to be. Then the cinematographer had to you know, film it just right. The editor had to cut it right into the perfect rhythm. So for all those things to come together and then land emotionally, that I think has a big, big impact with me. So I think that's why I remember stuff like that. And then something like Yoshinoya, that bit and the day that it happened was, I'm just very, very, I was very, I'm very aware of how lucky I am to get to do a creative job because I worked for years doing very uncreative jobs and I can see and for some people that's fine, but for me it, it felt really, really deadly and it felt like a premature death in a lot of ways. Like I could feel like this is a non-life that I'm living right now. So to have creative moments that then land with people and then push my career along, those really stay with me because every one of those moments that lands with me is a moment that pulled me further away from those coffins, you know, for, from a life in a coffin basically. So, so I think those moments, and not just moments that I did creatively, but moments where I was in a room and I watched somebody and it made me go, oh my God, I gotta, you know, I, I, there's all these moments in comedy clubs. I remember so specifically nights and venues and performers that made me, that, that you know, kicked open doors in my head that made me go, oh, I can go further because of what I just saw. That's the sense I got from reading Silver Screen Fiend especially is that, that you would watch a film 
and it would fire up your self-critic and yes. your inspiration engine at yes. the same time, and it seemed like those two would fight with each other. Right, especially for, for movies that really, really land with me. What always I go back to is uh, the only thing that stopped, ultimately, 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 the only thing that's stopping you from doing what you want to do creatively is yourself. Because if you look at any successful movie, before it was made, it was, of course no one wants to see this. Wait a minute, a movie about a kid that sees dead people, but then at the end it's the guy that was dead. Who would, no one wants, come on. Of course no one, so people have to just ignore all that stuff and just go, no, I'm just gonna shoot this, this is what I want. I, I want this, you know. I mean, I mean, the Pixar's whole thing started out with it's a movie about toys that are secretly alive and have, what, no? Who the hell wants to see? And we're going to make it on a computer. On a com No one wants it. Like, it was just non... All it was was non-buys. No one's going to buy that. No one's going to buy that. No one's going to buy... Like, and, that's, and that's even the inner voice that's saying it before. Well, what happens is then that... If, if you keep running into people like that, their job in life is to infect you so that they don't have to keep doing that. And then you get that voice. And then, they, and then they've won. So all the times that you keep doubting yourself, what you're doing is you let some dull, uncreative, uncourageous person in your past, you're letting them win when you let that voice win. You've let someone in your past, and if you really sit and meditate on it, you can almost trace the voice back to specific people. There's people that you'll meet that will inspire you and, and help you along, but for as many of those people that you meet, you'll also meet people going, no, it doesn't work that way, you have to do this, and that's the way it works, and people don't want to see, you know, and you can, in, you can choose to internalize either voice. Um, and sometimes you don't get to control which voice wins on which day. If you wake up hungover or sick, or, you know, and you get to, then the, the negative voice will start to win. They're like, oh my God, he's down. He feels like crap. We got him. Let's run with it a little bit. You yeah. Know? So you've got to find ways to keep yourself, I think, healthy mentally and physically to give a, a better playing field for the positive voices rather than the negative voice. And, and again, the other thing too, it's also very seductive, all the negative voices, all the negative people that you meet do not think that they are negative, uncreative people. They think they are helping you. Right. They are doing it out of a genuine sense of concern and care. They're not, they think they are helping you avoid pain and disappointment and humiliation and all they're doing is stifling you. I've run into different, I've run into club owners that were genuinely amazing in terms of moving along and I've run into club owners where it was like, if you want to fail in comedy, follow this person's advice to the letter. It was astounding. When I went to college in Williamsburg, there was a club that he didn't even give this advice to me. He, and he wasn't even the club owner. He was like the club owner's husband or something. But um, I would host this open mic and uh, one open micer went up and did a bit about how he hates people who smoke and he was trying to work. And the jokes didn't really, didn't really work, but it was his, that's how he felt. He didn't like smokers, and he was trying to work out a way to make that funny. He went up, the jokes didn't work, but it was how he felt, fine. He comes off stage, and I overhear, he, the, the, the owner's husband like takes him aside like I'm being the, because he got to like lord over all these comedians. He was just this, this nudge. And I heard him saying to this kid, he was like, look, the popular thing right now in comedy is that people hate non-smokers. They think that they're annoying and luxury. And what you need to start doing as a comedian is you need to figure out how the audience feels. 
and do jokes that they already agree with. So basically what he was saying was, however you feel shouldn't matter. You should figure out ahead of time what the audience likes and dislikes and just do your stuff. And it was like, it was almost like, it, it was like I got, I almost feel like, <clears throat> not that I, I, I hate that term, the universe put me here to do the, but it did feel like I was, I overheard that moment for a specific reason to go, you have just literally seen the ape, this is the apex of how to fail. And you're hearing it like you're, this is failure personified and you're hearing this for a reason. And did, like that, that did that make you feel advice. like, I've got to leave this town, I've got to leave well, this it, kind it, of environment? It, there's never that single epiphany like they have in movies where you, but it was one of like a dozen things leading, because I was just about to graduate and there were a lot of other things that happened that made me go, yeah, I need to leave this, I need to go to, and I moved to San Francisco, which was the opposite of everything I was being told as a comedian back on the East Coast, at least well, back in Virginia, well, which was so That's what fascinates great. me. From reading about you, I got the sense that, you know, the guy I saw on stage back then was a guy that probably had a notebook in his pocket and, and was constantly in a dialogue with himself about, could this be a thing? Could this be a... And I, yeah, and, and I wonder if you could shed some light on your writing process, like how you actively worked at that stuff and how you ran it through the filter of, is this, is this authentic to me? It's weird. Back then, I didn't really... I mean, I had a notebook where I would write down like ideas or, or premises, but I never really sat down and wrote out bits. That's actually something that I just started doing recently, actually sitting down and writing pages and pages over and over again, you know, working out a joke and seeing how to make it work. Back then, it, I wanted it to be way more conversational. So I had two things on my, I had two big advantages. One was I did have this constant dialogue in my head because I watched so much stand up. You know, I watched all my friends and I could, you know, so it would kind of like jolt me like, oh, that's okay, okay, there's something, oh, sh yeah, that's a better way to phrase it, that was more risk, you know. And then the, big, the other big advantage I had was I had these friends to hang out with. I had people like David Cross and Zach Galifianakis and Sarah Silverman that I would hang out with and we would bounce jokes off each other and bouncing jokes off of people that were working at that caliber of writing and performing is a real, you know, really makes you, you, you better become funny quick or you just, you're not gonna last. So that level of writing, you know, that, uh, that I was exposed to every day and every night hanging out is going to make you a better comedian. Did you feel that way? Like, like I'm, I'm surrounded by these amazing people or I'm one of these amazing people? I was, I always felt like I'm surrounded by these amazing people. And another, actually a third advantage I had was I was, always the least funny in the group. And, and I think if I had been the funniest person in my group, that actually would have made me lazier and soft because I'm like, well, I'm the alpha here. I'm the funniest one. I was always the one trying to ding riffs and having to improve what I did, which made me better. You know, So I, I never felt like I'm one of these people. I'm like, I can't believe I'm getting away with hanging out with these people. You did. I really did. And just watching those minds bounce back and forth, it was almost like, oh, good, I'm just going to get, this will make me even better or I should stop doing this. Like, it was that kind of thing because I'm also very well aware that there's that, there was this famous exchange between John Entwistle and Pete Townsend where John, this was like in the early 80s and Entwistle was like, I just don't get rap. And Pete was like, well, it's not our job to get it. It's our job to get the fuck out of the way if we can't keep up, you know? And I'm very, very, I'm a very big believer in, um, hey, don't crowd the door, 
if you know if you've said what you need to say, there's people that need to come, that start lifting those people up. Like serve the form rather than your own career because your career is a blip on the form. So if right. you can serve the form, that's way better. That's why you know John Waters. John Waters is such a great example on how to live a life. He so kicked open the doors in terms of of what the vanguard is, what the edge is, what outrageousness is. And then he went, the stuff that I used to do that got me X ratings and only shown at midnight are now literally throwaway jokes in PG-13 films. Right. Like Pink Flamingos ends with a transvestite eating a dog turd. And in the Awesome Powers movie, in the first 10 minutes, he drinks a mug of liquid shit. And it's just one of a billion crazy jokes. <laughs> right. So he goes, I'm going to become America's beloved gay uncle. And I'm going to try to promote other artists and point people towards writers. And that's just, that's a great way to get to end up in life. As you're talking about this being surrounded by comedians and people that you felt were funnier than you, I did want to ask you about San Francisco because that's where you went and sort of had your sort of comeuppance in oh, a way. You yeah. describe you describe going to a club where there's a you realize it's an open mic and the whole audience is filled with comedians. And you describe going on stage and the evening ends with you going to a restaurant and tearing all these pages out of your notebook and throwing them away. And it made me realize that as a comedian, what works in your house in front of the mirror, you're missing the key ingredient of of the education you need, which is to get up well, it was, yeah, it was even weirder than that because I had gotten up on stage. I had been doing comedy at that point four years pretty much nonstop from 88 to 92. I worked the road. I did, you know, the, the Tom Sobel's uh, comedy caravan all through Kentucky in the South. I did all the Garvin's clubs. I did the Comedy Factory Outlet. I did Slapsticks. I did Sir Laughs a Lot. All of these chain comedy clubs working the road, and I became a really, really good road comedian. I could do reliable, um, funny, instantly forgettable shit. Just this stuff works. I knew the mechanics of it. I knew the grammar of it. I knew the rhythm of it. But there was nothing of me in it. There was nothing personal. There was nothing I was about. I've got to do well. I've got to earn a paycheck. I've got to be this reliable person. Then I go to San Francisco in the summer of 92. And I've moved there and I'm like, I kill on the road. I'm going to go in this little holy city zoo. I've only got to do five minutes. Oh my God, the kid's in town. Here we go, man. I'm going to blow this room away. And I went up and I did the A shit that always worked in front of, and I just watched the whole show before me. And it was like Greg Proops, uh, Laura Milligan, Lankin Earl, like these people that were, um, I'd never seen them before. I'm like, oh my God, this is the funniest shit I've ever seen. I can't wait for them to see me kill. And I go up and I do all my killer stuff and they, they didn't boom me or anything, but it was just this room full of genuinely creative people trying to push the envelope going, well, yeah, of course, that yes, of course that works, that's fine but like not laughing because I was just doing and it was this w weird I was pan I was panicking because I'm like why don't why aren't I on that same level don't they know that I I've headlined cranberries in West Virginia how dare <laughs> they you know and it's one of those weird moments too where and I've seen there's a lot of comedians you, it's almost like that's your 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 fork right there where there's some comedians that are doing that hack shit and the truly creative comedians that are, are going to be a voice someday aren't mean to them, but they're just like, well, it's not funny. And then some comedians go, I'm going to double down on this shit and become a billionaire 
doing this sh crap and then they'll be forced to respect me and then no one respects them and they just die angry. Or you can do what I did, which is I walked across the street from the Holy City Zoo to the Taiwan restaurant on Clement Street. It's still there. They still serve great food. I went there a few months ago, had my notebook. I tore out all the pages, all the jokes that I had, put it in the trash, and I just wrote May, May 5th, 1992, upper right-hand corner, and just started writing new shit, and just started, and then, and then so I was, that was just a moment. doing. Like, that was it was, a real... I, and part of it was I, I went out of my way to make it a moment. Well, looking back on it now, I was, it was that dramatic 23-year-old, like, no more, you know. But there was a real, there was a sense of genuine panic to it, too, of like, I just watched a room full of the most creative comedians I've ever seen up to that point in my career, and they shrugged at my stuff. And did you at that point decide, I wanna be one of those people that is illuminating humanity more than just being a professional laugh getter? Well, I think one of the reasons that I realized I wanted to be one of those people was watching them hang out in the bar after the show because up to that point when I had been on the road at these other comedy clubs with these headliners, after the show in the comedy condo or in the bar, they just didn't seem very happy. They, they had killed. But they, but they seemed to hate the audience, and they seemed to, they would, oh, the goddamn road, and yeah, I do that fucking, but of course that goddamn kills, and they, they're just selling merch, and they just, the whole thing seemed like this very sour enterprise to them, and then I'm suddenly in this room, the Holy City Zoo, with these comedians, none of whom were making any money, but they were so excited, and then after the show, they would talk about each other's bits and riff on them and ding stuff back and forth, and just have all these weird inside, it was like this other language, like it, it was the, I, I we're just creating just to create and everything else will come later. It was like, it was the life I already wanted to live, which was living the hours in the life of a comedian, but then, but a happy, goofier version of that, which I didn't know existed. So then I wanted, I'm like, okay, now I gotta exist at that level. Right, the road comedian is is a lonely, dark life. Well, it can be if you, again, if you, if you look at comedy as just a, well, I'm just telling these jokes and the audience are idiots, so there's no point, you know, if that's how you're coming at it. But, the, but I, had, I actually had a weird, I look back on it now, it's very advantageous because I actually got all of the road rhythms into my bones and muscles early. And then once I got those rhythms down, I threw all that material out and then did the stuff that I want. But then I had the stage chops to then deliver it. Right. But I think if the joke isn't a surprise to the comedian telling it, it's not gonna be a surprise to the audience. So ultimately, what we were trying to do, especially with the Largo and the whole alt comedy scene was we wanted a sense of surprise for ourselves up there. Like we're discovering it along with you and oh my, and, and also we didn't want to be needy. A lot of, uh, of stand-up comedy is very, very needy. It goes back to that guy of like, trying to figure out what you guys want and I'm trying right. to give it to you and I've been thinking so much about you. We weren't going up going, hey, fuck you audience, but it was this, hey, I really like this. I hope you come along. This is what I'm into. I mean, look, one of the reasons Richard Pryor was so uh, tectonic in how his comedy affected people was, it was white people listening to the, not just the black experience, but the side alleys and the deep cuts of the black experience that a lot of middle-class black people had never even experienced. And it was startling to have, you know, 
to, to hear that level. And, but the way he described it, anyone could understand what he was talking about. Right. And you're like, oh, my, and you walk away from the show going, I had no idea that that was the, you know, it was amazing. There's that one line he says, he goes, wow, drugs are an epidemic. And then he goes, that means white kids are doing them. <laughs> and there's this moment of like, you see both the, the white people in the audience are like, oh, oh, shit. And then the black people are like, yes, that's, ex God damn it. It was like this whole two people realizing, not only were they each realizing a different thing, but they were realizing the other person was realizing it. So you get this, the reaction is, is just on another level. Why do you think it becomes the provenance of comedians to uncover things like that? Because a really, really good comedian talks about something that he or she the, the comedy comes from, oh, you're, when I fucking realized this thing that I had been doing and didn't realize was going on all along, and then the audience goes, fuck, I, so we're all in this together right now. And it's those moments where it kind of shrinks the distances between people and says, yes, for all of your pain and confusion and competitiveness and fear, of the other and of the distances and of the enormity of life and the infinite, we also do this really stupid fucking thing. And then it makes me go, well, oh shit, maybe we're, for, for little moments, we're actually in it together. Is that the best moments for you of comedy when those? Those moments, yeah. You want that connection all the time. Well, what I, what I always think of is Hang that, on, let me ask you something. Yeah. Have you ever been interviewing someone? Because I've seen this with some interviewers where, you, you've pointed out something, to, you're not trying to go for an aha or gotcha moment, but you point out something that someone has done creatively or musically or something and they go, fuck, I never thought of that. And, and, and you as an interviewer get those moments of connection. Yeah. There, there's yes. an art to this. And that's why I get so frustrated in interviews when people are, they'll go, What's it like being a comedian? <laughs> what can people expect? Name your five favorite. Like, Interviewing people is an art. You can make connections that the artist had, did not realize. So have you ever, you, have you had moments like that where you're like, yes. and you didn't even think that was going to happen? Or, or I'm surprised that, that this, these two things haven't been connected. And when they do get connected, all of a sudden the whole room's alive. And that's yes. what I love about this thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you're not trying to, trying to pull the rug out from underneath them. or do, You just want them to, because you, their work made you look at things a certain way or differently. And then sometimes people, and I've had this all the time, you will, you will reveal yourself through your creative work in ways you didn't realize. It's probably the reason you become a comedian, right? Because, because you, I would assume, were turned on at one point by a comedian that, got, yeah. that made you see the world differently. And I think that's what great artists do. Right. And what a comedian can do is look at a situation we've seen a thousand times and make us see it in a new light. And right. that makes it more true. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to do that. But I think a lot of that comes from, uh, a lot of that, as, as much as I hate to say this, because I do believe in crafting stuff and doing the work, but sometimes that, that shit's just accidental. It, it gets revealed in ways and you didn't think about it till someone else points it out. Like, who does the quote, how do I know what I think until I start writing? Right. And you must have had that. Like, I don't know what my opinion is until I tell someone. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I've been writing things and I'm like, what? And then suddenly it will unlock because I'm sitting there writing it. I'll right. realize what the pattern is as I'm sitting there writing it. Bruce Lee said, there is no way to know yourself 
unless you see yourself in action with another person. That's the only way to know yourself. You can be by yourself and run scenarios in your head about how you'll talk to people and what you'll say and blah, 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 but it's not until you're in action with another person that's when you know who you are. Right. That brings up, uh, in your book, Silver Screen Fiend, you basically describe a four-year period in your life where you sat in movie theaters watching pretty much every film worth seeing <laughs> from Dr. Strangelove to uh, Sunset Boulevard right. to, um, to His Gal Friday. And, and you would go to the New Beverly Cinema. And, but what, and, and, and you, you sort of wrote this memoir as through the filter of sitting by yourself in a movie theater yes. and trying to make sense of life. And you felt the need to go deep into your obsession of filmmaking. And maybe the most poignant thing about that book is that I think there's this person who was just dying to tell stories that way, the way these great heroes of cinema were telling mm-hmm. them. And, and I see you talk in the book about how you're going to write this and direct this. I and know. I and know. then in your most recent special, you say, I still haven't directed a film. It's something I really want to do one day. <laughs> I and I, I see this poor guy for four years going to these movies and basically like intimidating himself to the point of inaction by the exactly. titans of cinema. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was almost like I, I, I got too close to the quintessence and it paralyzed me. Like maybe if I, you know, because then you look at, although, you know, I, I do take solace in the fact that, but Scorsese grew up watching, you know, Ford and Raoul Walsh and, you know, Sajet Ray was obsessed with films. You know, Ozu, all he did was watch movies. So if those guys could get over why, and, and by the way, Scorsese today, you know, people will praise, oh my God, Goodfellas. He goes, yeah, but it's not the red shoes. And like, oh, dude, would you just, uh, you know. So maybe you have to, you have to just go make stuff despite that anxiety. You know, that, that's what it'll, what it'll come to me is one day me just doing a, you know, a Huck Finn and going, well, I'll go to hell then. And I'll, you know, I'll just do it and. Well, some will be shitty, wonder, some will be good, you know. What are you most terrified about making a film? Um, being in action with other people and realizing that it's just not for me. Filmmaking is such a specific animal, and there are some people that, I mean, you know, Pauline Kael is one of the greatest film critics of all time, and she had a development deal at Paramount with Warren Beatty and then realized, oh, I'm supposed to write about films. I'm not supposed to make them. And that's a hard thing to kind of realize about yourself. So that's something that I have to go and face one way or the other. For all I know, I'm going to get out there. You know, the coffee will be boiled, not boiling. The the craft service is out there. The crew is there. And I'm just not going to, I will not have the visual, poetic, narrative sense to shoot good scenes that will make a good movie. So you're it afraid that all the there. things that, that you know about what makes film great, like... You're, it's, it's scary to think that you might not live up to your own expectations of what it yeah. should be, and you'd rather not face that, I guess. Right. I mean, there were amazing food critics that couldn't fry an egg to save their life. There are, you know, amazing literary critics that could never really write a book that would make you turn every goddamn page. It's just, it just, everyone can't do everything. So, you know, I, I feel like maybe I've... Uh, I mean, I've, I've done very well with stand-up. I've been very blessed to be an actor in things. Maybe I should walk away from the roulette table instead of shoving more chips back out there. Like, why am I about <laughs> to fuck all this up? I don't know, you know? I don't know. I would posit that you tried your hand at, at writing, 
-hmm. and you're a great writer. And you've made this, this progression in acting that's incredible. How quickly, relative to how many hours you put in on the road in comedy, you turned yourself into a very good actor in a uh, comparatively short amount of time mm -hmm. to where you were on Justified and Young Adult and, and now on AP Bio, where you're every bit as successful as that as, as anyone would want to be. So I don't know. I would say maybe you find out you're great at it. You'd love it. I have to find out one way or the other. I mean, I will. I just don't know when, but I'll have to find out one way or the other. It has to be, it'll have to be soon. I mean, I'm 50, for God's sakes. You know, now I'm doing that. I keep, because if, if you read about a lot of different creative people, you can always judge it like, well, Raymond Chandler didn't start writing until he was 51. You can always find then, somebody. Yeah, you can always find someone who's like, like well, the list that guy is getting didn't smaller. start making. All right, I'll be okay, you know. So <laughs> I can, I can just like, oh, God, I need to find a good 80-year-old first-time yeah. filmmaker to give myself that 30-year window. That'd yeah, there's got to be one person. There's got to be one <laughs> Dude in a rascal scooter with an oxygen tank. Action! And uh, places! Action! So, yeah. You want to hear a really embarrassing story about finding out who you are in action with another person? Please. Me, the big film buff expert, computer brain for movies. I was hosting the Carney Awards, which is a character actor award show. This was last year. Which I was excited to do. I'm like, oh, I love character actors. And they were giving Lifetime Achievement Awards to M. Emmett Walsh and uh, um, uh, uh, um, Think about character actors. You can never remember their names. I know. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. James Cromwell. Sure. And, yeah. So all these great, great people. So one of the presenters was, was Harrison Ford. I'm backstage with Harrison Ford. And uh, he's presenting the award to M. Emmett Walsh. I'd never met Harrison Ford. He's just standing there, and I'm just like, "Wow, that's so cool! You came out here, man." Because I'm a big M. Emmett Walsh, and I'm and I'm talking with him. He goes, "Yeah." I'm like, "And M. Emmett Walsh? I mean, dude, that guy's been, you know, straight time. Like, I'm naming all these obscure movies he made. Like, yeah, you know, he's on the bus and at the end of Midnight Cowboy." And, and you're all sort of stuff. trying to impress Harrison. A Ford. little bit, but I'm also like, I'm just I'm showing him that like I care about character actors. He goes, and right. he's just being patient, like, uh huh. And I go, "Now, did you do a movie with with M. Emmett Walsh?" And he went. Blade Runner, <laughs> which is one of my favorite movies. And I was like, that's right, yeah, yeah, you, that's right, yeah, you had a couple scenes. Like, I just wanted to go and, I wanted to go and die. Like, I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. But you know what, it's revealing that that's the story that you preface by saying you want to hear something really embarrassing because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, it's Harrison Ford and you forgot a film, but it shows. I forgot a film that was a benchmark for me. Like, right. that's a huge movie. And to forget that to his face. But you After know trying to impress him with my M. Emmett Walsh knowledge. <laughs> Holy shit. Harrison, you know who I really like? George Lucas. Have you seen Willow and Howard the Duck? <laughs> and, uh, and he did that restoration of Kagamusha, the shadow work. You ever make a movie with uh, George Lucas? He's good. <laughs> He's really good. He was a PA on The Rain People, one of uh, Coppola's <laughs> earliest ones. I don't know if you, you ever done a movie with George Lucas? <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> But it, it, it reveals your high standard for, Fuck. and I see how you could be paralyzed oh, when it comes to making your God own films. Damn it! Yeah. yeah, you've paralyzed yourself with I've knowledge. Paralyzed my, I'm paralyzed obsession. with knowledge. Yes, kids, knowledge is bad. <laughs> if there's one thing to take away from this, stay ignorant so you can make great movies. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor today, Helix Sleep. 
You know, Helix sent me a mattress after I filled out their two-minute survey about how I sleep. And I can tell you honestly, I've had the best sleep ever since I got this mattress. I'm someone who abuses my body to some extent on skateboards and on motorcycles. And since having this mattress, I have felt better waking up on a regular basis more than I ever have in the last 10, maybe 20 years. And I think it's because they build a mattress that's totally custom to you after finding out your sleep habits. They built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. So whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, or you like a plush or firm bed with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com slash off camera, take their two minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. I'm at least 100 nights in now, and I love this mattress. So if you do this, and if you go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, you take their quiz, and you get one of their mattresses, send me an email, let me know you did this, and then after a couple months, send me another email and... I want to know if you feel the same way as I do about this mattress because it's been a great experience for me. And if you're a longtime listener to Off Camera, you know that we only put products on here that I personally believe in and support. And I want to hear about your experience. So right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash off camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off camera for up to $125 off your mattress order. So go check it out, helixsleep.com flash off camera, try it out. And now back to the show. Well, listen, I have to pay you a compliment. Yes, you do. I do. I need one. Give me one now. Well, that's what your manager said. <laughs> okay. You have to pay him a compliment <laughs> on screen. A, the kid needs a compliment. He's very unstable. <laughs> Give him a compliment. <laughs> uh, I was talking to Harrison Ford about you. Oh. No. No, I have to pay you a compliment that your special Annihilation is the most moving stand-up special I've oh, ever man. experienced. Thank you. And what's interesting about it is that the first half is a fully formed, uh, you know, original voice, completely relaxed, doing what you do, and three-quarters of the way through the special, you start talking about your wife who passed away tragically a few years ago. and. I knew the story, I was totally aware of it, and yet it, it knocked me over with what a, what a human moment could, that could take place between two people where one is sitting in front of his computer watching a Netflix special that's been out for a year, and the other one is on stage and was recorded a year ago, and I'm, I'm, and I'm feeling more connected to somebody than I ever thought I could through the medium of entertainment. And, I wanted to ask you about the work that had to go into making that decision to share that part of your life. It was, um, you know, before my, before my wife passed away, I was really, really content with, I was really going to scale back the traveling and the doing stand-up. And I kind of felt like I'd said what I wanted to say. And she, you know, her her writing career was really, really taking off. And I was very, very content to just stay home, maybe just start writing screenplays, acting in stuff that shot in L.A. 
you know, being with our, our daughter. It was just, that's where I was going. And then suddenly she just, you know, she passed away. And, and I'm like, I don't, I, there were a f like three months where I just did absolutely had no idea what to do next. And what was most scary was after about a month of it, I didn't care that I didn't know what to do next. I was just gonna, I was, I was trying to make myself this painless android. Wake up in the morning, make Alice breakfast, get her to school. I would park near her school and just sit there and read. And then at three o'clock, I'd pick her up from school, bring her home, you know, do homework with her, make her dinner, get her to bed. Same thing next day. Like that's all I wanted. I didn't want to think about anything, you know. And then I was, I guess it was, I don't know if it was the life force or the creative force or both, but it came up like you need to, what you know how to do is go on stage and that's what you do. So if you were a guy that was, a, if you built homes, you'd have to pick up a hammer again because you have this daughter to take care of now. It was all about, you gotta take care of Alice. So find a way, to, and also I was very much like, I go on stage and do, people are going to be so disgusted. How dare you? And I, and I would talk with my therapist about this like every single day. And he was like, the audience came to, they don't, they've got their own shit going on. They have their own problems. You know, they'll forgive you. You're supposed to, you know, that's what you do, you know? Um, so I started doing, this is like in August. My wife passed away in April and then late August of that year, I just started doing open mics around LA. Like, could I, could I physically just get on stage? The first couple times I just went on stage and just started talking about how she had passed away and how I was dealing with it. And I, there's no jokes. I just wanted to go, can I stand on stage and talk about this? And then I was like, I think I may have a set. And then Netflix was like, we'd love another special out of you if you think you're up to it. And then what was weird was by the time I got to tape the Netflix special, which was June of the following year, I had gotten the set to where I could actually kind of perform it. And there were a couple of times where I just did new material and did not mention that my wife had passed away, didn't talk about that at all. And that really creeped the audience out. Oh, like really? that felt like, are you not gonna, t what the fuck is wrong? Like they were really, really, and I would get messages on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Not mean ones like, are, that was very uncomfortable. Like it's, you should talk about, it. you should say something, you know? And so, but then the other weird thing was then when it came time to tape the special, which I'm like, now I, I feel good with about this set, but I would still have these nightmares where I would go up on stage and start doing this material and it would just, none of it worked. The audience was just like, nope, you shouldn't be up there. Really? Yeah, and so I did not know that that was gonna work until I stepped on that stage and was into it about 10 minutes. And even then though, I had that, well, okay, this material's working. They're okay with me up here doing jokes. Are they going to be okay when I do that transition into talking about Michelle passing away? So then, so there was like these two huge terrors that I had to push through doing that special. Well, what struck me is is the attempt to be totally honest, and yeah, even in in describing what you felt you were supposed to be feeling versus what you were feeling, I, I think. I think grief is such an odd thing because people want to contextualize it as it's a journey or it's a it's a it's a path towards wisdom or whatever. Right, you called right. it a numb slog. It is. You're not out there doing a speaking tour on grief and how you can get over it. I remember reading C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed after Michelle passed away, and the first sentence is, "No one told me that grief feels like terror." 
And that's what it feels like. And it feels like terror every single day. I've had friends who've lost, like their mom died and it was terrible. And then when their dad died, it was just as terrible. Like it was, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fresh new monster each time. So I don't know if that's reassuring or not, but no one, there's no one out there that you're like, oh, they did, they're doing grief better than I am. Like it, everyone, you don't go through it, you get put through it. But it's like, now that I've gotten through it, I'm loath to go back into it. It feels like a, I want to put that experience behind me and kind of live life again, rather, because that was a death. It was just, it was a living death. And it was a, you know, I talk about it in the special where there were moments of, hey, am I the one that died here? Maybe I'm actually dead and I'm imagining yes. all this, you know, that I died and I, you know, I can't deal with being dead. So this is what I'm imagining right now. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the next worst thing. You know, I find that when you can find out about life from a source that is unexpected, like find yeah. out about grief from a comedian, right. uh, the most vibrant art is when you get to witness the artist in the middle of their own discovery. And I think that in some weird way, that's what I took away from you feeling the need to go back to work as awful as that was and, right. and share your life. And I wonder if you walked away from that experience in, in some way changed forever, not, not from your wife's death, but from talking about it and taking it to the public, if it changed your approach to your own art. It definitely, um, it changed the approach in that up to, that was such a culmination of everything that I had learned about how to do comedy to get something like that across. So, so to do, to deliver something that big and that difficult for me, afterwards I said, well, I think I need to start changing up my, pro, my creative processes because I, I brought everything I learned to bear to, to make Annihilation happen. Now I think I need to learn new stuff because there's bringing those same techniques and tools to then just doing jokes is just not gonna it's it's, it's not gonna have the same impact anymore. So now I've changed up what my methods are and and, and I'm trying to do that because I think you, just, you have to you know like once you have used this a certain number of tools you can't use them again. You it gotta, seems like you, know, you opened up a door and there's such a greater right depth. That, that now you've seen it. But yeah, and if, and if, I, if I were to go back to my old methods, what, it, what I would then be doing is I'd be falsely um, engineering the going through that door again, which would mean me backing out through the door so that I could go through it again. Like, but we saw you go through that door. Go, go into the dark. There's probably another door in, that, in the new darkness. Go into the new darkness. Well, that's, okay, so that's what I took away from it, that it was incredibly brave to to go there, and you found another level. And in your book, uh, Silver Screen Fiend, you talk about your night cafes. The night cafe, and yeah. I'll try to do a really condensed explanation of this, because it is more complex than I can do it justice, but Van Gogh did a painting called The Night Cafe, mm -hmm. and it had such significance to you that in terms of you used it as a descriptor for when you get turned on to a, 
an event, a scene, a place that changes your course and your path. You go and into a room and when you come out, you're a different person. You come out, you're a different person. And you talked about the first time being when you saw Nosferatu as a child in the library. Yeah. And, and you were moved by cinema in a way that made you curious about it forevermore. Another Night Cafe was the first time you heard stand-up that, right. that moved you. And, and I guess it just made me really curious about if somehow your wife's death and having to talk about it and having to contend with being an artist in the face of tragedy was your, in some weird way, your next night cafe. Yeah, and it was not a night cafe. I would have, I mean, at the end of Sober Screen Fiend, you know, I, when, when my daughter is born, I'm like, well, you know, my next night cafe will be the one that I don't come out of, being my death. And then, which just shows you how wrong I was, or night cafes along the way. And also, you know, what I point out later in the book was, because I, 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 when I was young and I first saw The Night Cafe, I very much romanticized the tormented artist, that art comes out of insanity and, and um, disease and, and depression, the Edgar Allan Poe's, you know, Baudelaire and the, and, and the Van Gogh's. And- yeah, all that. Yeah, exactly. So then... Um, but then later on, when I went to Amsterdam, uh, I went to, to the Van Gogh Museum uh, because the Night Cafe is unfortunately at Yale. It's not in the Van Gogh Museum. It's at Yale. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, which I've, ne- I've never seen it face to face. The one time I went to Yale, it was on loan to some other gallery. I'm like, are you kidding? That's the one. Ugh. You've got to see this. This is, you, I you've made see, it your yeah. own. You have I know, to but see I mean, it. I've, see, I've, I've, I've gazed at the picture, but I need to actually see it. But when I went to the Van Gogh Museum, there were all these self-portraits that Van Gogh and his circle of friends did. They did like a, it was one Christmas and they were all broke. So Vincent thought of the idea, let's do like a Secret Santa thing where we'll draw names and we'll each do a portrait of the other as a gift because they had no money to give each other the gifts. And it, I, I started crying because it really put the lie to, this guy, yes, he was a genius and had all this insight, and, but he also wanted... He wanted a normal life with his friends. He wanted to have happiness and joy. And I'm at the age now where I don't believe that true creativeness comes out of misery and insanity. That, that bullshit line of, of Bukowski's of, no writer who could ever write worth a damn could write in peace. Well, that's bullshit. That's fucking bullshit. There's plenty of writers who wrote in complete peace and happiness and wrote great stuff. So putting that myth, especially on very uh, uh, um, insecure kind of coming of age people in their late teens and 20s, where that's like this safety bolt hole of like, well, I'm supposed to be all fucked up. Like, don't, no, no, you don't need to be fucked up. And yet one of your most original artistic statements of all came from one of the greatest moments of grief and tragedy in your life. Yeah, but it didn't come from me then going off the rails because of it. It came from me going, okay, I have got to become a father. I've got to move on as a comedian. I wasn't on stage drunk or on drugs and screaming and crying. I was on stage. I had, I faced it sanely and soberly. And, you know, the fact that I almost think like it's a way for people that aren't creative to console themselves going, well, of course I'm not creative because I'm, you know, I'm living a happy life. I'm not like, all those guys are in fucking torment. It's like, well, I think you, I know you would like to believe that, but there were plenty of brilliant 
people that were completely nice and sweet and you know a- absolutely yeah, I, yeah. absolutely well listen i want to i want to close with one last question and just tell me if it's a dumb question but, okay um when you were writing and conceiving of of annihilation and knowing that you were going to talk about what had happened did you ever put it through the filter of knowing that one day your daughter would see the show yes uh I, everything that i've not, that's not true. My first few specials, I, I talk about it. I never want to have a daughter. I like the fact that now there are, when she's older, she can watch the snapshots of her dad, and, sh- and hopefully it'll lead her to other people too, you know, of that's how I felt at that age. Like, you're allowed to be different people and, and change your mind about things. You're going to feel a certain way at a certain age, and then you'll totally change. It doesn't, yeah. you know, and I'm glad they exist, and she'll... Hopefully someday get to watch. And also there'll, there'll be there'll be things that she's gonna see me say and go, oh, dad, that's such bullshit. I'm like, you're right, you're right. That's a that's a that's a uh, that's a pretentious 24 year old showing off, and you just caught it. But you also gave her a time capsule of your own love and grief and what you went through. That is, is I hope she sees it that, that way. She, yes. Like, by doing the special, you were, you were able to give her this gift of, of telling her the story in a way that made sense to you at the time. Well, she said something five days after um, Michelle passed away, and I didn't put it in the special because it just it was too enormous to just put in my special. But it was we, neither it was like five days. Neither of us are sleeping. We're just you know, she's crying all night, and then she said, "When your mom dies, you're the best memory of her." Everything you do is a memory of her. She said that. She was seven years old. And for, for that to come out of her, for her to say that, was just stunning to me. She, like, for her to go, I'm the best memory of my mom. Not anything that I'm going to have. I'm the best memory. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I ran and I wrote it down immediately. I've always remembered that. And so, so the fact that she has that attitude about it, you know, gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Well, listen, it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you and I hope that you find more night cafes and, and I get to see yeah, the, me too. see what happens cuz I hope very everybody I hope there are night cafes for everything. I hope that there are night cafes for athletes, for politicians, for like I I I am very very comfortable with a fundamental shifting of everything that you think you know. I'm I think that that's very healthy for for the species as a whole, for the planet as a whole. So I hope that there are night cafes for everything. Well, listen, go make your film. I will. Damn it. Good luck with everything. Blues Brothers versus Predator. (laughs) We just sold the script. Very excited. Two. Yeah, two. There you go. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. You know, there's a treasure trove of work by Patton Oswalt that you can dive right into. You can start with his show, AP Bio, go to Netflix and see his comedy specials, read his books, Silver Screen Fiend and Zombie Spaceship Wasteland, and then you can go back and check out earlier works like Young Adult or his hilarious work as a bumbling police officer on Justified and his long-running stint on The King of Queens. It's also something for the kids as Patton voiced the titular character in Ratatouille. So check out all that work, and if you're lucky enough to catch Patton live, it's an experience like no other. 
I really had a good time talking to him and I hope we can have a part two someday. Now, if you want a part two with Off Camera, go straight to offcamera.com where you'll find over 180 episodes waiting for you in full black and white, high definition, archived for your perusal. Now, we are a podcast and we're also a TV show. And you can find the television show on DirecTV's Audience Network. And you can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So here's what you should do. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, go to Apple, do that, subscribe to us, leave us a rating, leave us a review. This helps more people find the podcast and it'll help you never miss another episode. You can also go to our website and watch our television show. And the best deal is for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every one of them. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Like I said at the top of the show, you can also email me. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. And I'm happy to take advice, criticism, comments, guest suggestions, or if you have a question, just ask me. I don't know if I'll know the answer, but I'll have fun trying to answer it. I want to thank everyone that helps us on this show. Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Nathan Shields, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. These are wonderful people that work really hard. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in each week. And if you love what we're doing, take a minute, tell your friends, and share off camera. Because we would love to be in more people's ears and in more people's homes. And most importantly, please join me next time when I sit down with actor, comedian, and writer Ray Romano. My son, he came home at 6 a.m. and I was up and I go, Joe, you're coming home at 6 a.m.? And he just keeps walking in his room and he looks at me and goes, for now, and goes in the room. And I'm like, that is so weird, funny. I can't tell if he's the dumbest kid in the world or the deepest. He might be the deepest. And it blew my mind. I didn't know. I go, he's right. Time has no meaning. And I went back to my the bedroom and my wife said, did you find out where he was? And I was like, where are any of us? Where Are we here? Are we even here? Ray may have gotten his start in comedy, but in the years since Everybody Loves Raymond ended, he's made quite an impression as a dramatic actor, with compelling performances in projects like The Big Sick, Parenthood, Vinyl, Get Shorty, and most recently, Paddleton. Ray joins me to talk about his long road to success, why too much time off led to an existential crisis, and why he decided to make his first stand-up special after a 23-year hiatus. See you next time, off camera.